This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Julia Gillard, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, I've got to say, I'm in awe of you. Um, (laughs) For those that know me, they know that I've got a big crush, that I have stalked you for most of your professional life, and that we spoke a couple of years back. Was it 2014? Yes, it was. It was when my story came out, which was my book about my time in politics. Yeah. And so that was back in my home, actually. So today, here we are. We're in the office. I've got to say, I've been thinking about this conversation for a long time and thinking about you, of course. And when I think Julia Gillard, I think Barack Obama. Oh, well, I'm very happy to be in that company. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know why? It's because I feel that you're both politically astute and smart leaders, but also that you bowed out gracefully. I think the similarities are that you've bowed out gracefully out of politics and you've pursued fantastic careers. Oh, thank you. Well, I have tried to uh, build a different life in my time post-politics and I did take a very firm decision when I exited to not be, you know, a commentator on contemporary events, not to be, um, you know, someone that was rushing in and rushing out of domestic politics, but leaving it to the current generation. And that has given me the time and space to pursue some things I really passionately believe in on education and mental health and women's leadership. Mm. So let me introduce you. There might be a couple of people in Australia that don't know who you are, (laughs) maybe one or two, but we do have an international audience. Julia Gillard was sworn in as the 27th Prime Minister of Australia on the 24th of June. 2010. And I remember where I was that day and served in that office until June 2013. Julia is the first woman to ever serve as Australian Prime Minister. As Prime Minister and in her previous role as Deputy Prime Minister, Julia delivered nation-changing policies, including reforming Australian education at every level from early childhood to university education, creating an emissions trading scheme to combat climate change, improving healthcare, commencing the nation's first ever national scheme to care for people with disabilities, addressing the gender pay gap for social and community sector workers, and delivering an apology to all those who had suffered through the practice of forced adoptions. In October 2012, Julia received worldwide attention for her speech in Parliament on the treatment of women in professional and public life. She currently serves as the inaugural chair of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College in London, which through research, practice and advocacy is addressing women's under-representation in leadership. Now, the book is called Women and Leadership. It's called Real Lives and Real Lessons. It's co-authored by Julia Gillard. Now, you've got to help me here. <laughs> Ngozi 
Konjo Wheeler. Yes, Ngozi. She was uh, a foreign minister and finance minister of Nigeria. She's currently head of the Global Vaccine Alliance. She chairs the board of directors. So you couldn't have a more important job right now than being in charge of the organisation that tries to make sure that the poorest parts of the world get access to vaccines. Now, I don't want to dwell on the past, but I do want to talk a little bit about your treatment as a Prime Minister. And I just want to make reference. I heard this the other night, and I'm not going to get political because we are going to talk about women and leadership. This really rang true to me. I was watching um, a documentary on the Clintons and the narration started with, when Republicans lose, they get mad. When Democrats lose, they get sad. And do you know who I thought of? Tony Abbott. (laughs) He was mad that you were the Prime Minister. <laughs> he was so mad. <laughs> well, 2010 was a close-fought election. Uh, obviously, we had some uh, you know, party instability uh, that affected Labor's campaign and we ended up with such a close result that it was in the balance whether either Tony Abbott or I would be Prime Minister and we did the negotiations and ended up with the Labor minority government. So I guess he did have a sense of it should have been him. Uh, But even with all of that, um, you know, the years that followed afterwards uh, were ones that we were able to make productive years where we passed more legislation than any other government in contemporary times and we tried to get some big things done. You talk in your book, and I just want to make reference to this, when you're making reference to the way that you were treated, and it was pre-Me Too. And when I think about the way that you were treated by some of your colleagues in Parliament, some of your male colleagues, some of the mainstream media, and some of the mainstream jocks, and I'm not going to mention their names because they're not worthy to be mentioned on this podcast, the name-calling and the uh, outright misogyny and sexism, and really the bullying was... I couldn't believe it. And now you look at me too and what's coming afterwards. I wonder if things would have been different. Why did we as Australians tolerate that? I think it was a time when the conversation about women, politics, leadership, gender equality wasn't at the sort of um, front of people's minds the way it is now. And that isn't to say that we hadn't had waves of feminism in Australia. Of course we had. But it wasn't a time particularly characterised by women's activism. We had the global financial crisis. People were focusing on their economic lives, whether they would be okay, their families would be okay. And in the middle of that, you know, the nation gets the first female Prime Minister, me. And I guess there are just a series of things that happen with the first person that perhaps you don't react to at the time and you can't see the full scope of until you're looking back with hindsight. So I do think that there was, you know, a sense amongst many of us, including me, that yes, some weird things were happening, but they'd probably uh, go away over time. The more that there was a woman in the top job, the less there would be the sort of gendered carry on. Can I just interrupt there? Because you make a comment in your book. Um, You say that um, you thought you would be judged on your skills and experience that once you got the job and once you were doing the job and doing it so well, that that's what people would focus in on. But they didn't, did they? I know it sounds so naive in retrospect, doesn't it? (laughs) So very naive. Uh, But I did think that. I thought that the maximum reaction to me being the first woman would 
be in the early days and then it would go back to politics as usual, which is, you know... Mm, brutal anyway. Brutal anyway, particularly <laughs> yeah. how we play it in Australia. It's a tough, tough game. Yeah. Uh, but it wouldn't be particularly around gender. It wouldn't be full of gendered insults and all the rest of it. And yet what happened was the longer I was there, the tougher the political times, the worse it got. It was terrible. Um, I want to. I spoke to Malcolm Turnbull recently because, as you know, he had a biography out. We had a great conversation. Actually, it's one of my favourite podcasts, and we talked about you. Um, and I said, I feel that this country owes Julia Gillard an apology for the way that she was treated as prime minister. He didn't agree with me totally. He agreed that we owed you an apology and he agreed that it was some men in Parliament. But I really do think historically we will look back at that time and be embarrassed that we didn't do more to stop that. But anyway, that's my view. I don't know what you think about that and probably hard for you to defend. But I do. I think it's something that as a nation we should be apologising for me, the most important thing is that we learn from it. Yeah. Uh, and the reason, you know, I wanted to write the book, the reason that I'm now putting some of my time into the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College in London, and we're bringing the institute here to the Australian National University, so we'll have an Aussie end as well. The reason I'm doing that is I know I can't change the past, but I can make a contribution to changing the future. And if we do learn some lessons from my time in politics, if we study the evidence about women and leadership, if we all commit to being part of the change we need to see, then it will truly be better for the next woman and the next woman and the next woman. And that's what's important to me. Do you know, I do Pilates with a fabulous Australian writer called Emily Maguire. And I told Emily that I was coming in to speak with you. And she sent me this um, it's TikTok. I don't know if you've got the app. I don't. But anyway, it was... Do you know what I'm talking about? The misogyny speech. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And... I, w I think I have now watched it about 100 times <laughs> because I love the fact that it has been one of your legacies, that I don't know where it came from at the time. It was so powerful. I remember seeing it almost live. I remember being bitterly disappointed that it came back to us via the UK media, via The Guardian, that Australian journalists, female and male Australian journalists, did not pick up on it and that it came back as you know, one of the greatest speeches now of all time via them and not us. Tell it, me about that time. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the speech was given in a political context uh, where the Speaker of the House of Representatives was under attack for very sexist text messages. And so question time was always, well, I thought question time was going to be about sexism and trying to skewer me as a hypocrite on sexism because I'd supported this man to become Speaker. Obviously, I didn't know about the text messages at the time. And instead of question time going ahead, Tony Abbott moved a motion and my speech in reply to that motion is what's come to be known as the misogyny speech. But within the bubble of Parliament House, the press gallery wholly judged that on the politics of the day. They didn't see any ramifications from the speech beyond the politics of that moment. And then when other overseas news organisations started picking it up and it started to go viral, 
they didn't revisit it either. They just sort of called it an error or a playing of the gender card or starting a gender war. Or They know, started silly. the gender war. It's when it, they started calling you names, they started the gender <laughs> yeah. war. Yeah. I mean, that it was, you know, sort of slipshod analysis all round. But I think in some ways they were irritated with themselves that they'd missed the moment, that they hadn't they been the first with time. the reporting that then went round overseas and that probably upset them. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f- are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What do you think about it now? I mean, you know, I showed it to my team today just before you arrived, and... I just was it gave me goosebumps. It really is something that I, that is now a flag for young women. I mean, how do you feel about having affected people in that way? I'm I'm proud of that. I'm yeah. really proud and I'm sort of, you know, tickled pink when I see things like TikTok. I didn't know anything no. about TikTok either and I didn't have the app downloaded, but no. people started saying to me, "Oh, you need to check out this thing on TikTok." Uh, for a while earlier on when I came out of politics and, you know, I started to do global work and around the world people would talk to me about that speech, for a while I did kind of have a little frisson of resentment that, you know, I was in politics for 15 years, I was Prime Minister for three, we did all these big things and apparently it comes down to one speech, one moment. But now I'm more settled in myself that, um, yes, that has become important to a generation of women and increasingly to a generation of young women. And it's a motivator for them. It's something that helps them get up for their day and whatever um, sexism or misogyny they themselves might have to face. And so, you know, I'm proud that it's making that contribution. Mm. Surprised, but proud. Oh, you should be proud. So I sat down the other day with um, women and leadership in hand um, and I, you know, beautifully written and really great read and just so informative, but a level of bubbling frustration and you must have that as well. I mean, how far behind are we still? (laughs) Yes, mine's pretty um, furiously bubbling frustration, I would (laughs) have to say. Um, We're well behind where we need to be. I mean, globally, the World Economic Forum tells us it's going to take the best part of a hundred years for I us read to reach. That. Yeah, and I was like, what? what? Uh, for us to reach a gender equality in political empowerment, and they not only do the sort of global stats, they do it nation by nation. And Australia is actually slipping down the rankings, so that's even more galling. We get flogged, for example, by New Zealand in that ranking, and so there's a lot we've got to do. And 
Because reading this and all of the uh, statistics and where we are does give rise to frustration, we wanted to conclude the book with practical things that people can do to make a difference. And I hope we've achieved that. Oh, you have, absolutely. Yeah, we want to inspire to action rather than just, oh, gee. Uh, (laughs) And so let's talk about some of those inspirational moments because there were quite a lot. I mean, the women that you spoke to, I mean, Hillary Clinton, Jacinda Ardern, I mean, she aspired inspires me every minute of the day. If I want to cheer up, I just have a look at a photo of her. <laughs> That's <laughs> fantastic. I love don't, it. Don't you think? <laughs> oh, she yes, is, I think she's she, um, providing remarkable leadership. In in so much. Like, you know, not just um, – I don't know what it is. It's the empathy of her p- appearance. It's not her looks. It's like, you know, when that terrible massacre was happening and she was holding people's hands and she had this headscarf on in terms of respect and – I just thought you ooze empathy. You know, there is something about her that I find very compelling as a leader. And I feel that women have that over men. Do you think that? Yeah, I think she has very much wanted to foreground as uh, the key of her political leadership, kindness. You know, that is the word that she uses. You know, whenever you hear her speak, she talks about people being kind to each other. And I think that kind of warmth is something that people are really looking for. You know, at times of crisis, like that horrible shooting in New Zealand. But also now during the pandemic, people are very worried about what's going to happen next. And that warmth, that empathy really shines through and people gravitate towards it. And I think it's like... Like very often women in leadership roles in the past, like say for instance Margaret Thatcher, you know, she was called the Iron Lady because she was displaying male traits, if you like. You know, and what I warm to in a leader is when they're just being themselves and showing, you know, traits like empathy, like kindness, because why aren't they leadership traits? I think there's several layers to that. I mean, the the first layer I would say is I'm not a believer that, you know, men and women are somehow biologically different in their brains. We're not wired for leadership differently, but we learn to lead differently because we're socialised from, you know, the first moment we're on this planet into gender roles and girls in particular are taught to not be Miss Bossy Boots, but to show kindness and to look to the team and to put the needs of others first. So when women come through for leadership, I think we look to them to reflect what we expect to see in women, that nurturing and that empathy. And we can pay out on women if they don't. Uh, and the the, psycho- the psychological yeah. research shows that very clearly, that if a woman is commanding and doesn't uh, look nurturing, then people react against her. So the lived experiences of the women who come to the top is that they need to balance strength and empathy. Some do it better than others. I think Jacinda does it amazing amazingly well and that has you know come to global attention for all of the right reasons in this very uncertain time where we are now I think that's a leadership style that people are going to want to see more of and my hope is that they demand it not just from women but from men Otherwise, we're kind of putting this extra burden on the women's shoulders. We're saying, you know, look, if if you're a tough guy, uh, we'll think about voting for you, but we'll only think about voting for a woman if she's strong and empathetic. Well, if we're going to value empathy, then we should be requiring it of all leaders. Mm. 
of all people. Um, I want to talk globally about uh, women leadership. I mean, I know she's not interviewed in this book, but I think you you talk about at one point Angela Merkel. Right? Yes, we do. Yeah, you do. Again, she's somebody I, I greatly admire. Um, uh, and if you look around the world globally, like let's say Finland too at the moment where you have, you know, I mean, I think it's an all-female, is it an all-female government? Well, at least there's full representative, the Prime Minister and... And, and many of the key ministries, that's right. A, a young a young females. And when I think about Australia, I think we are just years and years away from that. Do you think that? Oh, I don't think years and years away. I mean, when we look, and I don't want to be you know, too party political about it, but this is just the maths. Yeah. I mean, the Labor Party, because it adopted an affirmative action target in the 1990s, now in the national parliament and in the state parliaments around the country, basically presents teams which are pretty close to half-half, not always, not entirely half-half, but pretty close to half men, half women, which means by the time you get to the cabinet level and the senior, you know, opportunities, you have a number of women there. And that's true, for example, with Penny Wong and Christina Keneally and others, uh, Tanya Plebisek in the current parliament. Um, on the conservative side of politics, they never adopted a target and they've went for a variety of other strategies, but they've been ineffective. And mostly their political representation, say nationally, is around about 20, 20 mid-20s women, 25, 26%. So, you know, given the cycle of politics turns, you know, one side's in, then the other side's in. If we're going to see enough women come forward, we need both sides of politics to be presenting large numbers of women. So we do see, need to see profound change on the conservative side. Do you know how I said I stalk you? I was <laughs> at your event with Hillary Clinton. When was that? A couple of years ago? Yes, when Hillary came to yeah. Australia. And you said something, I don't know whether it was you or whether it was Hillary, but you said that people were more accepting of a woman in a deputy role. Yes. And, you, yeah. and Hillary was at her most popular when she was President Obama's Secretary of State. Yeah. And you were most popular when you were, is that right? Yes, when, when I was Deputy Prime Minister. To Kevin Rudd. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And so when I look at Australia, I think that we accept female premiers more than we would expect, accept a female Prime Minister because that is considered not the top job. I think that's an interesting observation and I'd never really quite thought about it like that. Uh, so maybe you're right, you've given me something, you've given me some homework, I'm going to take <laughs> that away and mull it through in my mind. I, I've kind of concluded that we're a bit more accepting of women at the state level because there have been more of them. And in interviewing the leaders for this book, you know, when you look around the world, about 70% of countries have never been led by a woman. And then there are only 13 countries that have been led by a woman more than once. And then there are only two of those that have been led by a woman three times, New Zealand and Iceland. And it's clear, particularly talking to Jacinda, that she feels she's got more space to be the leader she wants to be because having a woman lead the country is not unusual. There was Jenny Shipley and then Helen Clark for a mm. long period of time. And I've tended to think that it's that effect that we're seeing at the state level, that because there have been a number of women now, um, that's getting normalised, whereas, you know, because there's only been me federally, 
see. We haven't been through that process of normalisation mm. yet. Yeah, no, that's a good point, actually. Okay, in talking about the book, tell me what were your favourite bits? Like, what were your favourite? I mean, I've got my favourite interviews, but tell me what yours are. Uh, I enjoyed all of the interviews, but I got a particular um, laugh and uh, very much enjoyed interviewing Erna Solberg from Norway. And I do think one of the kind of delights of this book, I hope, for Australian readers is that it will introduce them to leaders they know less about. Well, that I knew nothing about. Yeah. It was a real discovery for me. I mean, there were some of those women that I'd never heard of. Yeah, and Erna's probably in that category. Yeah. She's a conservative in Norwegian terms. Now, um, given the sort of political spectrum, that's not very conservative <laughs> by anybody else's terms. Um, she's, you know... a big woman um, who's very forthright, very honest. And she started the conversation with us by saying, I had to talk to my media advisor. I had to ask her what resting bitch face is. And she's described it to me. And now I'm going to smile more. And, you know, we just had this really frank conversation about the way women get stereotyped even in a country that is uh, high up in the gender rankings, and Norway is very high up mm. in the gender rankings. It always comes in the sort of top two or three in the world. So uh, we had a lot of fun with that conversation. At the other end of the spectrum, um, I you know, can picture in my mind's eye right now sitting around a table with Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who was the first woman to be a national leader in Africa. She became president of Liberia after many decades of civil war and disruption. She's an older woman, dignified, and her life story is about domestic violence, exile, imprisonment, physical risk, and she came to lead her nation uh, to get her first educational qualification, she needed to leave Liberia and that included leaving her children behind, including her one-year-old son, so she could go and study. And that just taught me so many lessons about you know, what it is to endure and how many things we take for granted because we live in a country like Australia. Mm. Mm. So we do we do live in a country like Australia. I do think that sexism is still rife here. So I want you to give us some tips. If you're a young woman and you're aspiring to be in politics or aspiring really to a leadership role in an organisation which have the same challenges, I think, as politics, tell me what your... I mean, your career path is a great example, but what advice would you give young women? I'm always very keen to convey to young women that they should go for it. And one of the... I agree. Yeah, one of the problems, and we were conscious of this when we were writing the book, we talk about it in the book, mm. is when you talk about uh, the way women get treated, if you're not careful, you'll put young women off. And we don't want to put anybody off. We want young women to go for it for leadership, no matter what walk of life they're in, what field of work. But in giving them that advice, we also want to convey, you know, don't be naive, um, you know, don't underestimate that there will be reactions to you just because you're a woman and think in advance about some of those things and how you'll handle those moments because all of us do better if we've had the opportunity to plan and strategize rather than get blindsided in the moment. And really that's what the book is for, to help young women do that. 
But it also places responsibility on the shoulders of others. You know, fighting for a gender equal country or world isn't just the responsibility of women, it's the responsibility of everyone. So there are tips in the book about what men can do, what the media can do uh, to try and equalise treatment of male and female leaders. Mm, Absolutely agree. Julie Gillard, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, I've very much enjoyed it. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.